0: Good evening, everybody. I'm here in Westminster this evening and a poll overnight published by the Daily Mirror suggesting that five out of ten people simply don't think they'll be able to afford their bills in a few short months' time. Already up to 40% of people saying they're struggling meeting their bills. And this is coming in a sort of endless cascade. To begin, of course, we've got food prices. I mean, goodness me, even rationing of sunflower oil in our shops from Saturday. Some stores you can buy one bottle, other stores you can buy two, but Ukraine, of course, a major food producer. So, food, the first thing that is rocketing. Going out to eat and drink, the price of that, absolutely rocketing. Taxes, of course, that have gone up this month for the vast majority of working people. And filling up the car, I mean, it's a horror story. (laughs) It really is pretty frightening for people, let alone household bills, gas and electricity. We really are heading into, without doubt, the most difficult time for people that we've seen in this country, right back to the oil price shock of 1973, and inflation that we had in the mid-1970s. It is a rough, tough, difficult time, and I think there are genuinely millions of people out there, decent people, people who want to pay their bills, want to pay their way, really worried about what's going to happen. Indeed, we even had the boss of Scottish Power last week suggesting that by October, gas bills could be, and I quote, Horrific. So we're going into a very, very difficult time. Heating or eating, that's been the debate that's been going on over the course of the last few months. But people are facing, I think, some very, very difficult choices. And politically, uh, for a government in power, that's a problem. For an opposition, it's not easy, because what are their alternatives? How do you bring prices down? How do you deal with the problem of inflation. Well, we could have a lesson on economics and go back to the early 1980s. um, But even if you take big measures in the economy to deal with inflation, it's at least 18 months, two years, maybe longer, before that has any effect. Now, to me, to me, the really big one is energy. And you know my views, regular viewers. I think it's absolute madness that we lump on over 20%, 23% on people's electricity bills for renewable and social obligations. I think the fact we're a massive net importer of energy makes no sense. Oh, there are some that say, Nigel, even if we did produce our own gas, actually, that would still be at world markets, none of which explains to me why in America people are paying 50% the price for gas that we are. So that's my big idea. My big idea is that we turn ourselves around, we become a net exporter of energy, and we stop putting up taxes. The tax burden now, the highest it's been in 70 years. And I'm not saying uh, that that what I'm putting forward is gonna solve everyone's problems, but I do at least think it would be a help. So I'm asking you tonight, the audience, How is your lifestyle changing? Are you already making decisions? Maybe it's that far on holiday. And, hey, you know what? The pound is now down 10% over the course of the last year. I suspect it'll fall further. People's disposable income is being rapidly reduced. Let me know how your lifestyle is changing. Farage at GBNews.uk. Now, talking of energy, there's a think tank onward And they've produced some figures overnight suggesting that voters, and particularly here Conservative voters, are overwhelmingly in favour of net zero. They even suggest that if the Conservative Party was to ditch that manifesto, they could lose up to 1.3 million votes. Now, I was little bit surprised by all of this, so I thought the only thing we could possibly do is to ask Ed Burkett, Head of Energy and Climate at Onward, to come in and talk to me. And Ed, previously working in renewable energy, battery storage and those kind of things. I guess, you know, with polling, you can sort of produce the answer you want, can't you? I mean, you know, if I'm polling in the north of England on behalf of your think tank, and if I say to people, you know, Uh, would you like to see catastrophic climate change, people are going to say, well, no. But equally, if you say to people we're lumping massive subsidies and have been for two decades onto their energy bills to subsidised wind technology, then you might get a different answer. So, I mean, first, you know, I understand You've laid this out, that Tory voters are committed to net zero, but exactly what did you ask them?
1: So, the, the first question we ask people is, do you support or oppose the net zero target? And what we found is that 60% of voters across the UK support that target, and that 10% of them oppose that. And there are no massive trends between different groups in terms of one group massively supporting it more than another. What, you mean Labour or Conservative? Yeah, all? exactly. So, there is some more support amongst, uh, as you might expect, so, so Labour and Remain. So, the principle...
0: The principle that government should be doing something, is broadly accepted.
1: Absolutely, and it is really broad support, and even in the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and what that's done to energy prices and the cost of living, we haven't seen any big shift that we polled before that, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and after the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the numbers that we got back were, were almost identical.
0: Okay. Do people know, do people really know, because I genuinely think there's been a conspiracy of silence in Westminster. All the parties have agreed with green subsidies, uh, and all the evidence is that the more we go for renewable, the higher electricity costs become. Do people really know what they've had to pay for this? Because my sense of it, you see, Ed, I mean, I, you know, I asked a crowd this. We were out doing a Farage at large up in the West Midlands, in Dudley, and I asked how many people realised what, was be- what had been put onto their electricity bills. I would say 20, 25% of the audience had some awareness. The rest hadn't got a clue. So, so that's my question to you. Do people really realise what they're having to pay?
1: Well, I think it, it is quite clearly laid out. Perhaps we can make that uh, information clearer to people, but it's Where? all laid out on the Ofgem website, for example. Oh, yeah. Look, I get my electricity bill through the door or online. It doesn't tell me
0: on that bill what this subsidy does. How many people go to the off website as a percentage
1: of consumers? Well, I don't – but actually your proposal there is probably quite a good one. I have no issue with breaking down for people how much they are paying on their energy bill uh, for, for the different elements like we have with our tax bills now, for example. So that sort of transparency, I don't think there's anything to hide because what we've seen during the current crisis is that the renewables are providing, in a way, an insurance policy. So the new offshore wind farms have been built. They, are now, they have a fixed price. That fixed price is now lower than the market price. And so they are paying money back to people's suppliers and to people's pockets. People's That's the pockets. theory.
0: That's the theory. We'll see in the end in practice how all of this works out. I mean, you, you know as well as I do. We've been paying rich landowners fortunes just for siting wind turbines on their land. And it's you guys. It's you guys in this renewable club. Allied to the Michael Goves and, and people in the Labour Party, you've you've put all this upon us without ever telling us the truth. That's that to me, is, that to me is the fundamental objection here.
1: Well I, well, I think you've seen broad support from both Labour voters and because they don't voters, know, know what theory. you, they don't know the racket, do they? They don't know what they've been charged. Well, I have no issue, as you say, with making it more but transparent. But
0: I'm just about saying, right people now, charge. people, do. you know, you can produce this. I understand. I completely understand. If you ask people, you know, do you want the government to be responsible with the environment? You're going to get a positive answer. Of course you are. I'm just arguing that they haven't realised the costs that have been put upon them. But let me ask you a slightly different question. I mean, if you'd ask these people should the United Kingdom be, become self-sufficient in energy, mm-hmm. I think that too would have got a very positive response. And yet, you know, you know as, well as, as well as I do, we're importing huge amounts of gas, we're still importing substantial amounts of coal, although I do see that Michael Gove is considering very seriously this Woodhouse colliery in Cumbria being opened. How would you feel about that colliery being opened?
1: To be honest, I don't feel like it's a big swing on our emissions uh, and you know, the emissions that we have as a country. If it's going to improve our self-sufficiency, it might increase our domestic emissions slightly, but actually it's domestic rather than imported. Um, so, in a way, you could argue it would reduce global emissions. Um, but I think the big story on energy is what the government is going to be doing on offshore wind and what the government is going to be doing on nuclear. That's where the big story is here. But when offshore wind doesn't produce,
0: you need something you can turn on very quickly. Yeah to plug the gap, and gas is by far the best for doing this, whereas nuclear and wind don't go together in the sense that nuclear produces constant energy. And and look, I'm pro-nuclear, I'm pro-what they're saying, but hey, it's ten years away, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, and actually what you're saying is absolutely right around the role of nuclear energy, which generates all the time, generates electricity all the time, and then you have a mix of wind farms and gas-fired power stations. That's what we have at the moment, and then over time we need to have more of the renewables and less of the gas, but that's where the challenge is going to be. How do we ensure the lights stay on when it's not windy, uh, when uh, when we don't want to use gas? Should we go on being a big importer of gas or should we produce our own? Yeah, I think it's a perfectly reasonable expectation for us to say that we do not want to be a big net importer of gas. We're probably never going to be in a position where we're a big net exporter of gas, um, but I think it's perfectly reasonable for the government to say, as it has done, we are going for net zero, but that's a transition, and as we transition, we want to minimise our imports of fossil fuels. We're heading towards net zero by not producing our own energy here, and by exporting
0: huge numbers of manufacturing jobs. I mean, the fact is the whole thing's a nonsense because global CO2 emissions are not reducing as a result of those two actions. How do we get some common sense into
1: this debate? Well, so what you're talking about there is moving heavy factories away from the UK to places like China. Yeah. That is absolutely not the vision of net zero that we should have. And I think that is not the vision but it's that the, the reality government
0: has. It's the reality. You know, Boris Johnson boasts. You know, we've cut carbon emissions more than any other Western country. I think 44% reduction since 1990. But we've done it. You know, the steelworks at Redcar closes, and it goes to India the goods are made in India under lower
1: environmental standards and then exported back to this country. And we think we're doing well. Yeah, and, you're, and, and actually, that is, we are probably measuring it the wrong way. We should be measuring the carbon consumption of what we're actually consuming in the UK. So if it's produced here and it's produced lower carbon than it would be abroad, then that should be a net positive to our carbon budget, as it were, well, rather than a net negative. Yeah, I, I, but can
0: you understand, Ed, why I'm saying to you that I feel this whole thing, this whole debate, has been clouded with a complete lack of facts... Uh, with virtue signalling from politicians in Westminster without any proper explanation to people. And I want to come back, if I can, to that up to you know, 23% on people's electricity bills. Surely, you know, I'm talking about cost of living here, as you heard before, before you joined me, you know, if, and, it, and it may well be true if prices keep going the way they are, if 50% of households in a few months' time will be struggling to pay their bills, government has to do something to help people. The most obvious quick way is to, renew, is to
1: remove that 25% add-on. Uh, so, well, so I think at the moment, now that prices have gone up, it's no longer um, 25% because it's stayed constant. So it's £150 a year out of uh, £2,000 a year for the, the, so average, the average... the percentage the is down bill. because yeah. the price has gone and up. And because also the cost of the renewables has not changed. So that's a benefit. But... It's still a cost, so, which, which we could remove. So it's an obvious, it's an obvious solution. Unfortunately, I don't think it solves the problem. For a start, it's too small. It's only 150 pounds. Well, but it year. would still help. It would help, but we need something bigger. And secondly, it wouldn't be well targeted. The biggest benefit would go to the people in the biggest houses, who are usually richer, who are consuming more energy. So yes, there absolutely, absolutely, we need to do more but on are, energy but, bills. But there are lots of people, lots of retired
0: couples on fixed incomes, living in quite big houses, who may turn out to be some of the poorest out of all of this? Well, so
1: we need to identify the poorest and most vulnerable customers, whoever they may be, whether they are retired, whether they're on low incomes, whether they're disabled, whether they're living in leaky rented, private rented accommodation. Those are the people we need to be targeting. And what about the the 5% VAT? Should we just get rid of that? It was a Brexit promise. Well, so, again, it's it's small. It's small in comparison to the scale. I tell you what, if I say
0: to everyone watching this now, you can have 5% off, your energy bills. They're going to say, yes, thank you very much indeed.
1: Yeah, and it's a compelling offer, but the question is, could you reduce energy bills by 20% for those who need it most, who are going to be choosing between heating and eating? Well,
0: on current course, I don't think anything's going to change very much in the short term. Ed, thank you for coming in and joining me, and thanks to Onward for their research, which I find interesting, but I still feel people haven't been told enough. As people struggle to pay their household bills, I'm asking you, are you changing your lifestyle? Here are your responses. Philip says, if people have three different streaming services, have Sky Q in four different rooms and complain about not being able to pay bills, they need to prioritise their lives and cut back to essentials only. John says, not yet, but it inevitably will. Sacrifices will have to be made. Robert says, no, not at all. Obviously, prices are going up, but I think there is an element of alarmism to this. Well, Robert... It's not alarmism, is it, when the bill lands on the mat? And one viewer says, if so, this is the stuff of revolution. Well, that's a very interesting point, because Martin Lewis, very well-respected commentator on personal and family finance, he actually thinks that this could lead to civil unrest. I'm less sure about that, just because the British don't tend to go to civil unrest very easily. However, there's one country not too far away from us, where civil unrest is almost a national sport. It is, of course, France, um, modern France, founded from the flames of revolution and still prone to a good riot here or there. Now, yesterday was the second round of the French presidential election. Macron getting just over 58% of the vote. Marine Le Pen 41.5% of the vote. I thought what was very interesting... We're seeing Macron's acceptance speech, his victory party, it all seemed a little bit subdued. Um, and I think the reason for that is nobody would have even believed that a candidate with the name of Le Pen would get more than four in ten French voters to support them. But she did. And it's quite interesting, isn't it? Every time there's a presidential election, we're told that the Front National, as it was, or now, the National Rally, we're told that it's peaked. We're told that's the end of it. Well, I'm not so sure. You see, my own personal experience was this. In 1999, when I stood in the European elections and got elected to the European Parliament, UKIP came fourth. In 2004, UKIP came third. In 2009, UKIP came third. Second, and in 2014, UKIP won the European elections, won a national election. And hey, presto, we got a referendum and British politics has fundamentally changed. And many of the barbs that are thrown at Marine Le Pen, and please bear in mind, she does not have the same politics as her father. The BBC this morning was suggesting that she did. It's not right. It's not true. And I just see this steady progression, this disenchantment with the Parisian centralization, the arrogance, frankly, of Macron and many others. And I would not, for one moment, write off Marine Le Pen getting up to or close to 50% in the next round of the French presidential elections in five years' time. Well, one man who was there last night witnessing all of this was GB News's political editor, Darren McCaffrey, and he joins me now. Darren, good evening. How was last night in Paris?
2: You're really fascinating. You're right, Nigel, in the sense that I was at that rally with Emmanuel Macron, and yes, there was joy, of course, about the results, but overwhelmingly, there was nowhere near the same fervour. I think, of anticipation, of excitement that you'd seen five years ago with Emmanuel Macron. Now, to a large degree, we have to accept that's what happens with second terms. And let's not downplay Emmanuel Macron's victory too much in the sense that he is the first president to have won re-election in 20 years, he's the first president of the Fifth Republic to have won election while his party is in government. But my word, there is a sense, as you say, that Marine Le Pen, that the right is on the march in France. Five years ago, uh, she was trounced. That did not happen this time round. even though Emmanuel Macron did better in the end than the polls had suggested. But back 15 years ago, when she first stood, she was on 17% of the vote. She's now on 42 percent of the vote. And that was reflected, as you say, in Emmanuel Macron's speech, Nigel, in which he fundamentally accepted uh, that there were a lot of people out there who were pretty angry, pretty disenfranchised by where we are with French politics, and that he would argue he wants to be the unity candidate who's going to try and bring France together over the next five years. That's going to be an incredibly, I think, difficult uh, task. Not least of all, because there were lots of his supporters. Some polls reckon up to nearly half, 47%, who voted for Emmanuel Macron, not because they like him. Many of French people think he's arrogant, he's out of touch, he represents a globalist elite they do not like. But they voted with him to keep Le Pen out. But there were other people, even on the left, who decided to switch to Marine Le Pen because, in the end, they wanted to see uh, change. And that is why Emmanuel Macron's second term is going to be so, so uh, difficult. He's got a cost-of-living crisis, I bet many Western leaders have, but he's got a country that really doesn't feel comfortable with itself to a large degree, and I think that's going to be a struggle, not least of all, with these elections coming up in the National Assembly in just a couple of months' time, in which Mélenchon, the Jeremy Corbyn, if you like, of French politics on the left, and Marine Le Pen are expected to do particularly well, to the point where his party, Macron's party, could well lose its majority.
0: Yeah, and it's, Darren, also very interesting. I mean, you know, the commentary at talk about the far right, Marine Le Pen, although I notice her economics is really considerably to the left. Uh, But you've also got this large block of Mélenchon voters, as you've just mentioned, sort of a French Jeremy Corbyn, I suppose, is the best way that we could put it. What's really fascinating me, Darren, is it's the youth of France that are turning to Le Pen that are turning to Melenchon and perhaps that explains that explains why Macron and the establishment are frankly quaking in fear at these assembly elections.
2: Yes yeah, so I was at La Republique last night hours after Emmanuel Macron won after that rally at the Eiffel Tower and there were hundreds of young people out essentially calling Emmanuel Macron a fascist it- Caused as you would expect, and rightly pointed out here in France, lots of protests. there are riot streets, uh, riot police, uh, lots of bottles uh, thrown at those police officers. They clearly are not to be happy with the choice that the French electorate has uh, made i think what 's fascinating though in, in order to see off Marine le Pen, Emmanuel Macron is going to switch if you like. Over the next five years, that he's going to appeal much more to left leaning voters. We're expecting John Castice, the French Prime Minister, uh, to resign in the next couple of days, and that Emmanuel Macron's replacement for that will be a left leaning uh, Prime Minister if he secures uh, that majority. But that all speaks to the fact that there is division. The centre-ground has held in France, and it has. And as I say, let's not play down Emmanuel Macron's victory here. It, you know, the French normally cheer in the leaders, and then they chuck them out. They've not done that this time round, but only under enormous pressure from the right and left. And I suspect we saw it with the gilets jaunes a couple of years ago, the yellow-vest protesters who brought large parts of France to a standstill, given some of the reforms that Emmanuel Macron wants to carry out, given how divided France is between those that are poor and those that are wealthy, those that live in cities and those that live in the countryside, I suspect we might see a far more kind of vociferous French people who will take to the streets in the next five years to come. And that is why Emmanuel Macron's legacy, I would argue, is far from secure. This is going to be a proper battle, a proper difficult task. For the French president in his second term.
0: Darren, thank you very much indeed for joining us and giving us that analysis. And yeah, I mean, people rioting on the streets of Paris, what ever next? Now, one of the big reasons, one of the big reasons that Brexit happened and the global establishment was so shocked was over immigration. And it wasn't illegal immigration. It wasn't people crossing the English Channel in dinghies because that didn't even start, well, at least not that we knew of, until 2018. Prior to that, people were coming in lorries illegally, but it wasn't getting that much coverage. No, the Brexit vote was about legal immigration. It was about control. It was about reducing numbers. And the interesting thing is, Boris Johnson never really ever believed in that at all and we're now beginning to see that in government because some of the figures that are coming out for 2021 are really pretty extraordinary. 430,000 student visas issued in 2021 and a huge number of them to Chinese students, vast increase in the number of students from Nigeria and elsewhere. And, of course, these students, if they start to work, can stay. So it isn't just coming here to study. We've also seen work visas running at over a quarter of a million and family visas massively up too. Excuse me. We don't yet know the final figures for net migration in 2021. But what we do know is we have opened the door to a very large number of people from Hong Kong. We have opened the door to a significant number of people from Afghanistan. We have opened the door, in the end, once we get through the red tape, to large numbers of people from Ukraine. Uh, but actually, the points-based system the government has put in place has lowered standards to such a degree that we're frankly now open to the world and I think we're very likely in 21 or 22 to see record numbers of people coming to settle in this country. It is a huge change. And to add to all of that, Boris Johnson was in India last week and he said, in terms of putting a trade deal together, we have a massive shortage in the UK, we're short to the tune of hundreds of thousands... In our economy. And yes, we're short of people with IT skills. We're short of people with all sorts of trades and skills as we seem to encourage sending off hundreds of thousands of young people every year to get degrees in social sciences. There are those in London and in that building behind me those who write for newspapers like The Times, who think it's marvellous, absolutely marvellous, that we've got this open, liberal, as they see it, immigration policy. And what really thrills them is the British public now are not saying in polls that immigration is an important issue. And I'll tell you why. They think it's been dealt with by Brexit when they wake up to the fact that under Boris Johnson and in Brexit Britain, net migration is going up and not down There'll be a very big price to pay, but it's something that has never worried this Prime Minister one little bit. The one thing I did like over the weekend was Jacob Rees-Mogg. Fantastic. Going into that empty office in Whitehall, leaving a note saying, I'm sorry that I missed you. Rees-Mogg, going to war with work from home. Now, there are lots of people, again, behind me, who will tell you people working from home are so much more productive I don't believe a word of it. I think it's also very unfair to young people because young people need to get into an office, into a work environment and meet others. And into all of this, we now learn that the DVLA have accepted there are 200,000 applications that have waited for longer than 10 weeks. And this is to assess their medical condition as to whether they can continue to drive. And this will not be normalised until September. Well, I'm sorry, that isn't good enough. Um, it's putting huge strain too on GPs and many others. It's costing people not just their chance to go on holiday, it's costing people in many cases actually their livelihoods. Uh, now, I'm not saying all of the problems are because two thirds of a DVLA are working from home, but I think it's contributed to that, don't you? Right. I was pretty appalled over the weekend by the French and Germans. Uh, We now learn that despite the arms embargo to Russia, since 2014, both France and Germany have been selling weapons to Russia, but under the guise that they're intended for civilian use. And if you think about it, these people are supposed to be our partners in NATO. We're supposed to work together in an atmosphere of trust. It would appear, with both of those countries, that is pretty impossible. But one piece of really good news today, and I think we need it very, very badly, is we're on the verge of Elon Musk's bid for Twitter being accepted by the board. And goodness me, do we need a different voice in social media? Because we learned over the weekend uh, that Google are going to put some new safety factors on the phone to try and make it more difficult for us to use words like landlord. now I'm not making this up. Quite what is wrong with landlord or landlady? I don't know, but it really is Orwellian thought speech. Google controlling our minds, controlling what we say in a desire to make language more inclusive. So, I really hope and pray this comes to fruition. I hope today that Musk, gets control of twitter and yes it might be a bit chaotic but if it genuinely becomes once again what it was designed to be a platform for free speech well that could only be in my view a very very good thing it is as i say very very much needed one or two more uh, thoughts from you the viewers i asked the question are you changing your lifestyles in line with bills going through the roof. One viewer says, like many, I am struggling. When will the government step in and help us? Well, there's a limit to what government can do, but there are things they could do. Barry says, it comes to something when even the supermarkets slash their prices so people can afford to eat. Well, Barry... How much they really have slashed their prices remains to be seen. Sarah says, mine isn't, but I know plenty of you are struggling. I fear it's only going to go and get worse. Well, I have to say, I still don't think uh, that it's the stuff of us rioting and taking to the streets. I just, don't think they, I just don't think that's our way, but we're certainly heading, millions of families are heading for very, very Tough times. It's Talking Pints. I'm not in the GB News Tavern. I'm here in Westminster with this amazing view behind me, and I'm joined by TV star, all-round celebrity, and somebody who's seen a few ups and downs in life. I'm joined by Daniella Westbrook. Daniella, cheers. Welcome to the programme.
3: <laughs> Thank you. I've got a cup of tea, me. So yeah.
0: that's fine. We don't force people to drink. But the idea is that it's like Relaxed. having a conversation over a cup of tea or a pint as people do it's very interesting you know your sort of upbringing was really quite sort of almost quite middle class wasn't it
3: horsey i was very horsey yeah we're not really middle class people but i was very horsey but then back then in essex it was a lot more rural yeah than what it is now you know london's moving out isn't it so it's becoming less suburban but yeah i did have horses and Stuff like that growing up. i not my own, but I
0: rode horses. And this burning ambition to be famous.
3: To be an actor. Yeah. I loved the theatre. I loved the theatre. I just loved theatre. I was obsessed from the first time I ever saw Bugsy Malone, um, Jodie Foster. I was just obsessed with acting and, you know, the kids being adults in that, in that movie was great, and I just wanted to get into theatre and get into TV. Um, and, of course, back then, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, it was, it was unheard of, really. And my mum works at the Balbon, um as a bunny girl. And yep. she, she served a lot of the, the great stars, the Stones, the Who. And people said she had good contacts. So they put her in touch with Sylvia Youngs and that's off where I went there.
0: So, it was, so was it to act well or was it to be famous? Was it both?
3: It was to act. I just yeah. wanted to act. In fact, I had no intentions of, of really about fame. I just wanted to do theatre. I'd actually applied to go to Strasbourg in New York and ended up getting, um, before I even got a letter back from them, I ended up getting EastEnders about four weeks before. So, yeah, I had no intention, I just wanted to act, and then the other stuff really gets in the way of fame. And...
0: Well, EastEnders was a huge break, wasn't it? Because, it was. I mean, what do you think about that? You know, 1990, there hardly any TV channels.
3: Four channels. <laughs> it mean, so was easy to be famous yeah, back then, wasn't it?
0: Well, well it was, in a way it was, yeah, it but, was. There were, but there were four channels, there was no internet.
3: Nope. And no these, mobile phones. And
0: these... No mobile... Well, there was the odd one, but there weren't very many. They were absolutely right. They were huge. Yeah, the big bricks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it was a massive break, wasn't it? Getting it was huge.
3: It was huge pressure and... You know, and it was, and we only, you know, we only went out twice a week and an omnibus on a Sunday, so we used to get rehearsal days and tech runs and producers runs, and now there's none of that. Everything's so fast-paced in TV, as you well know nowadays.
0: Oh, no, but, I mean, people in soaps, I mean, it was, it was, it was... Oh, but
3: if you can work on a soap, you can work anywhere because you have to, it's like doing this, doing live. It's, you know, you really do learn on your feet. It's very fast-paced.
0: No, it was a fantastic break for you. Toya your soaps, Bill Roach... You know, Who, yes, have, who appeared in the first coronation street? Yes, he did. Nineteen sixty. He's fabulous, isn't he? and he's just turning ninety. Did you see I'm that? he's ninety. Ninety. He's 90, isn't he 90 at he's, all, isn't he? he's still yeah. acting in coronation street. He's
3: still street. fabulous. He's still, and got he's
0: big still good. Lines. I mean, amazing. I guess the soaps are not quite as important as they were. I know you sort of no, came in think. and you went out of east End as, uh, you know, several times, and some very dramatic parts and roles that you played. On EastEnders, but it kind of, that fame that you had allowed you when you were away from EastEnders to do modelling on a scale. I did lots of
3: different things. I think now you have to be able to do everything, reality TV and everything to keep up and keep current. But you know, you say soaps aren't as important as they are, they're a big part of people's everyday lives. You know, a lot of people, you know, at home they watch their, you know, their Emmerdale or their Corrie, or their EastEnders, Hollyoaks, whatever, doctors, whatever it may be. I think I've covered them all there. Um, you know, and and that's a big part of people's lives. They play, you know, you play a big part of of of, of producing and bringing out storylines of of big issues that go on in people's everyday homes, whether that's mental health or cancer or, or rape yeah. or all different types of things, abuse. Um, yeah, there's a lot a lot that soaps cover, and I think sometimes we've been lost a little bit the soap opera. Actors in the soap world because of reality, TV and and other things that are going on. I think soaps have sort of been played down quite a lot. But they are still very important to people.
0: No, I get that. And it's part of their lives. Uh, But for you, of course, you know, reaching this great level of fame that, you know, as as we say, before other TV. Fame, infamy, infamy. I mean, but you clearly, did you? Did you spiral downwards because you had had some very bad years?
3: I had bad drug issues, didn't I? You had bad Bad drug drug issues. Were those drug
0: issues there before you became well-known?
3: They were there, yeah, they were there, but they weren't as heightened because I didn't have as much money as I did when I was obviously working on a a big show. So, yeah, I already already had issues, but um, a lot of, you know, preconceived issues as well. But they they became heightened and obviously media... Really, the media saved me, if anything, more than once.
0: What by offering you a way back?
3: No, not by offering me a way back, by, by putting me all over the papers. By exposing me in a sense, because I had to do something with my life. My yeah. you know, otherwise I would have been ended up dead. So I have to for every you know, for every half empty, half full, for every down there's an up, as they say, part of the pump, but no, for me I think in a way just being exposed by everything, you've got to look at the positive in it.
0: Well you've got to you know, you've got to the situation that you were and obviously taking quite large amounts.
3: Oh yeah, I was really I was trying to kill myself basically, wasn't drugs. I?
0: What in the end turns it around? Cause, I mean, I, Only you know, I
3: can turn it around. You
0: know, I've had people, on, I mean, I had a lady on this show whose son died of drug addiction. She's this now trying awful. to set up a charity and help families who just can't yeah, comprehend of course. how their son or daughter's got there. How in the end did my you
3: My children it couldn't comprehend it. My parents, my mother, you know, I nearly killed my mum. Oh, God, the distress it put her under. And worrying every night she was going to get a call that I'd be dead somewhere or. Didn't speak to me for three years. I just went off crazy, you know. So do
0: you just sort of one day say, I've got to do something?
3: No, I just, I just got into the... Somebody put me in a meeting, I got where I needed to be, and I just... Like, I think I was just... I was done. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And for me, that's where you need to be. I mean, you can't do it for your kids, you can't do it for a job, you can't do... it Because then you're just faking it to make it. It's always going to come back to you. If you don't work a 12-step programme in your life and you don't, you don't put your recovery first, you're not going to stay well. But you can't fake that. You can't you're either in or you're out it's you know it's just the way it is
0: you've also talked about you know mental health issues
3: i had Uh, plenty of those
0: and you said yeah you know you 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 talked about uh bipolar personality disorder bipolar a bit of paranoia
3: yeah i've got psychosis i have psychosis i take medication for stuff and that's all brought on by by childhood trauma of being abused and Obviously not by my family, but being abused, but also as well from drug addiction. So psychosis, it, so cocaine gives you psychosis. It's a, you know, it's a common fact, and that doesn't leave you. So, you know, you do get side effects from everything, don't you?
0: And yet, I mean, I think, you know, class A drugs are... horrific. ...available on the streets of London.
3: I'm sure they're available everywhere.
0: Literally everywhere. Yeah, yeah I mean, literally everywhere... If we wanted to get hold of Class A drugs, we could do so in a few minutes. Please don't. No, I'm not not (laughs) saying (laughs) we will. I don't think
3: it would be very good for you.
0: No, I don't want to, I promise you. But but what I'm saying is it's massively available.
3: It's more easily
0: available than it ever was before. I think
3: so, yeah. It's the same as guns and knives, apparently, now in London. That's, you know, it's a commodity, isn't it? So what
0: do we do? What do we do to try and warn people off...
3: I don't know. Do you know what I just I just d- have no words because I don't know because everybody's situation, although it's similar, is different. And everybody's reasoning behind it and why they're doing it is different. But all I know is if anybody's struggling that, that you just go online and, and, and go to, you know, even Narcotics Anonymous yeah. or, you know, one of the out, one of the outreaches and, and just get into a meeting, get to a meeting.
0: And you're gonna get involved with some counselling yourself, yeah.
3: Yeah, I've tried I've tried to do something at the moment, trying to do some counselling. In fact my son and I are talking about writing a book. I'm doing my new book at the moment, but we're also talking about doing a book about my relapse that I had a good few years back. Um, And I'm going to do a chapter, and he's going to do a chapter, only a small book, and the proceeds will go towards a charity like that lady you were just explaining to help other people. And basically, it'll be, from my point of view, the relapse, the downfall, why it happened. And then my son, or my children, or mostly my son, will do a chapter saying how it was for him after seeing me clean for 14 years, suddenly I just changed one day. And then how my process and my journey of being in the relapse and then coming out the other side, and we'll do half a chapter each, only maybe seven, six or seven chapters, but it'll just be like a small book. For, and then family, people, family members will be aware that don't know about addiction, that have no clue about it, and don't know, that blame themselves or whatever, try everything, and then the person that's in trouble can see it from my point of view, because they'll be like me, the addict. Do you find
0: it... Do you find it hard to talk about it or not?
3: No, I don't. I don't find it hard, because if I can't be of service and talk about it to other people, then I'm, I can't stay well myself. And then I can't help other people. I can't not have this platform and not help others. It would be absurd not to do that. You just yeah. have
0: to. And other health issues you've had. You ha- had a cancer issue that's as helping, well. Yeah, and
3: I had an operation last week, a biopsy, two weeks ago, on my face, so that's still a little bit sore. But so we're that, getting there. That's
0: reconstructive.
3: That's all reconstructive, but that's exciting, though. Yeah. Because I'll be getting my health back as well. but. Yeah, I had a cancer scare. I had cancer cells, had all that done and removed as well. But I think that's quite normal in women my age. You know, I'm nearly, f- yeah. I'm nearly 50, I'm 48. The menopause, one thing and another, your body's changing, it's, you know, you just have to be aware of yourself all the time and check yourself, check your health. It's not until I've got to the age I am the last few years that I realise how much I I diced in my health and how important your health actually is. Well, you're
0: lucky to be here, really, aren't oh, you?
3: I very much so, yeah.
0: I mean, the, these were levels of abuse that were pretty horrendous. Yeah,
3: they I mean, shockingly horrendous, you know.
0: You said that you, you know, take medication for psychosis I and do, things yeah. that you've suffered. Do you generally feel happier in life now?
3: Do you know what I really do. I've got quite a spiritual, a bit of an old hippie in my old age. I don't learn to do a lot of yoga, I do a lot of meditation. I've just looked at different routes. I, I eat well, I do, you know, surround myself with very few people. Um, although a lot, I know a lot of people, I surround myself with few people. And I learnt the power of the word no which was nice, so I don't say yes to going to every event or doing everything or if I don't fancy doing something, I just politely say no. And that what about that,
0: that big ambition that you had as a young girl, that you wanted yeah. to be an actor? Do you still want to be an actor?
3: Yeah, I still want to be an actor, yeah, <laughs> I still want to be an actor, but I still I want to help people, and there's other things I want to do as well, you know, there's things I'm interested in, and, and after my operations, I want to come back to work, but probably full-time, but I really want to do theatre. You know, I was, I was speaking actually on TV News, a different show with Marks the other day, and I yeah. said... I'd rather do a weekly rep on for five hundred pound a week or three hundred pound a week than be on a show that I hate that's toxic for five grand a week because I know where it can lead me. I just rather be happy.
0: So treading the boards, this is where Going you want to. The, yeah, this back is back where, to you where, where you want to be, and that's real acting, I guess, isn't it? Because you've got live, yeah, you've got live acting. audience.
3: I love live. I love live in, f- in
0: front of you. And I
3: like those really small theatres as well that are in like little old pubs and things as well, like really small theatres, and it doesn't have to be you know big West End shows. Just want to act and do nice things
0: so the ambition's different isn't it
3: yeah it's just you know my needs are less as i'm getting older as well so you know i don't need i've seen a lot of the world i've lived in lots of places and i just want to do what makes me happy and have the time to spend hopefully my children will give me grandchildren soon so hopefully but you're still quite young really well yeah sort of
0: we well, say I that think... when we
3: get to our age well, i think young. i'm
0: 10 years yeah. older than you and yep. i I feel very young i've got I feel, loads yeah, of stuff yeah, I, I, I want to young, do young, but
3: i'm like I, I, you know, I just, I just, I don't need to be as ambitious as I used to be. No.
0: But to get back to acting...
3: Yeah, just to be happy and doing bits and pieces would be lovely.
0: And no more relapses?
3: God, no, no. One what, day at a time. We have and to what say. caused that? Um, and, and just a, a marriage breakdown. I think as well that I was, I wasn't working my programme. You know, I was 14 years clean, but I was turning up to meetings and doing stuff, but I wasn't working a programme. I wasn't working the steps. I wasn't sponsoring people. I wasn't doing chairs. I just wasn't, I was going through the motions and I wasn't being real and eventually that leads to relapse, mm. you know, and I was, 40, I got, it took me seven years into a 14 year recovery before I could say I would never touch another drug and there we go seven years after that within a week of deciding to relapse, I was full blown back drinking and taking cocaine um, and I wouldn't even know where to find it but like you said, you, if you're bent on doing something you'll go out yeah. and you'll find whatever you need to find.
0: Well I don't know, I don't know. I, I really wish you well I, and I hope that you can, I hope that you, can um, you know, use your bad experiences to warn other people, young people in particular, that it's not a great route to go down. But yeah. somehow it still seems very attractive to them, doesn't it?
3: It does. And the worst thing of it is, is we have no help in this country either for, for rehabilitation centres and things. So my dream would be actually to pair up with somebody and get some free rehabs going somewhere and get people in and seen a lot faster and, you know, at least some help.
0: You go and do that, please. And thank you for joining me thank on Talking Pies. Thank, thank you for having you. me. Cheers. Very good. Cheers. Thank, on to you, so much. thank you very Love much indeed. You. Thank you, Daniela. Very good. We've got a couple of minutes left on programme. And of course, it is Barrage the Farage. You send your questions in. Let me have a go here. Rosie asks Do celebrities and sports stars need more support while in the spotlight. I should have kept her here, shouldn't I? <clears throat> I think the problem is, you know, and we've discussed this with several of our guests on Talking Pints, that suddenly you can go from being nowhere to a huge amount of fame, in some cases an awful lot of money um, and a lot of bad, vulture-like people around you uh, that will take you in the wrong directions. But, you know, how do you, how do you set up a network for people who become celebrities. I'm just not sure I know the answer to that. Ryan asks me, do you think Trump could be back on Twitter soon? Well, I mean, Trump must have done so much good for Twitter commercially. And it's odd, isn't it, that Twitter was happy to be a loss-making company uh, that offended so many people with conservative opinions. And Musk, I have to say, I was unsure about Musk until a couple of years ago, but I can see this guy has just got the most extraordinary flair. Um, And if this goes through and he gets Twitter, who's to say he won't turn it around into being something that is hugely profitable? And Donald Trump, being back on that platform, would be a great part of it and would give huge entertainment to many, many people in the world. Mary asks me, Do you think Putin is blackmailing Germany? Well, yeah, Germany have put themselves in an absolutely impossible position. And uh, I have to say that in terms of economic sanctions, Putin still in many, many ways has a stronger hand of cars than Germany does. All he has to do is turn off that tap and the whole of German industry and over half of German houses would lose power and heating Respectively. So they put themselves in a terrible position. Mrs. Merkel's chancellorship will be looked at as being a total disaster, not the success the globalists all led us to believe. Do you think the EU are becoming apathetic towards Ukraine? Paul asks. Paul, I just think that the EU have gone for constant expansion. Uh, I think it's been a mistake, but I think they realize with Ukraine. Uh, that it would be a massive, massive problem for them. And Ukraine surely should want to be a strong independent country, especially after the experiences that it's been through. David asks, what does the Macron victory mean for the UK? It means we have a French president who absolutely loathes Brexit, can't stand the British, particularly the English. We'll get nothing back on fishing, nothing back on Northern Ireland, nothing back on cross-channel migrants. He will be the proverbial pain. He does not like us. Anyway, that's enough from me today. It'll be Mark Stein taking over in just a few moments' time. I'm back with you tomorrow at 7 pm.